Please be seated. Good evening to you. All right. Luke chapter 12 this evening, Sunday evening, uh, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to Luke chapter 12. I'll be with you in just a moment. I've got to get everything just so. There we go. A little OCD in action here right now. Let's make sure everything is just right. All right. Remember when we uh, finished chapter 11 here that Jesus had uh, just completed pronouncing his woes upon Uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish lawyers, the religious lawyers of his uh, day. And that's the context of what it is that is going on here. Their reaction to it was not, uh, they were not teachable, let's put it that way. And they sought uh, to uh, humiliate him verbally and then sought further uh, how they might accuse him with the idea of destroying him. And then in that same context, we're told that in the meantime, uh, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, so you imagine the crowd that is gathered around Jesus at this point, we're already told that it was a great crowd uh, when he uh, denounced these Jewish religious leaders. Now it's become an overwhelming crowd. They are... Uh, the crowd is gathering to hear what it is that Jesus is uh, teaching and what he's speaking to these Jewish religious leaders. These were the authorities. These were the people that presented themselves as the ultimate authority. And so uh, nobody questioned them. Nobody ever questioned them. And Jesus is coming in and he's engaging with them More than engaging, he's pronouncing woes upon their interpretation of the Scriptures and the bondage that they're bringing God's people under with those interpretations. And um, they just had never seen anything like this. Beyond that, as they're listening to what it is that Jesus is saying, it makes sense to them. It's clear to them that what he is saying is the truth about spiritual things and that these other guys have hoodwinked them. And so the crowd just keeps getting bigger uh, and uh, bigger. And so Jesus then began to say, notice, to his disciples, first of all. So he moves away from talking to the Pharisees, moves away in this great crowd from speaking to the lawyers, and now he's going to make all of this a teachable moment for us uh, as his disciples. And he begins by uh, no longer... uh, Uh, pronouncing a woe upon the Pharisees uh, directly, but now he speaks to us as his disciples concerning the danger of the influence of the Pharisees. And he said, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is a type of sin in the Scripture. The sin of the Pharisees and the single great sin of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a word, and it was a, a term. Today it means a, terror, a, 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 a very negative thing, 
Um, but in the ancient world, it didn't mean that. It was the word that was used, hupocrite, used for an actor, someone who would go on the stage. And in those days, they didn't have special effects in all of this. When you played one character, you would put one mask over your face. When you were done playing that character and moving to another character, you put another mask over your face. So it speaks about someone who uh, is, wears a mask in life. They are one thing outwardly, and then they are something else entirely different inwardly. And hypocrisy was the single great sin of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the legalists of their day. They took the Word of God, the uh, uh, even strict demands of the Word of God, and they uh, determined to make it even more strict and demanding than God intended it to be. The problem is, is that God gives us His Holy Spirit to obey the commands that are in Scripture. And once a Pharisee or a religious leader of some kind, or we do it on our own lives, we make the Scriptures more demanding than they actually are, then God does not necessarily provide us with the power then to obey those traditions and those wrong interpretations. In fact, it would do harm for us if, if, he, if he allowed legalism to have his anointing and have his blessing. So what happens is, if you're going to make something more demanding than the power that God supplies, then you are ultimately not going to be able to live up to the standard you're, you're demanding of yourself or you're demanding of other people. And so you will then very carefully adopt an exterior representation of who you are and then an interior representation that may have absolutely no bearing with how we present ourselves. Legalism always produces hypocrites. It always produces hypocrisy in God's people. And it's one of the great dangers of legalism. And so he starts here with the Pharisees with their great sin. And so he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he gives us the reason, uh, as he speaks about here, for, that's a reason word, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. So Jesus says, we're not to invest any time in our lives as Christians in hypocrisy in pretending to be one thing outwardly and another thing um, uh, inwardly for the simple reason that it is a complete waste of time. Because one day, as he's speaking about the Pharisees, but of any hypocritical living, uh, but specifically related to them, all hypocrisy will be exposed. And one of the things that hypocrisy needs to survive in a church or an individual is it needs secrecy. It absolutely depends upon secrecy to exist. And Jesus said, in heaven, there is no secrecy. God knows us for exactly what we are, no matter what appearances we put on. And he's denouncing it because he doesn't want us to invest in that kind of life. We have the freedom to be all that we are and all that we are not in our growth and sanctification and Christ-likeness and to come to God that way. 
and to be able to engage in one another as members of the body of Christ with there being an acceptance of the fact that all of us are under construction. All of us are growing. And as a result, all of us are going to fall short of perfection in one another's lives. So when he calls on us to uh, move away from this leaven, this sin, this, this curse of religion, and certainly a curse in Christianity of hypocrisy, it's easy to say, because that's just one element of it. In order for us to be able to actually be who we are openly, complete with our struggles and our difficulties and all of that, requires a church family and a church body that does not bring impossible expectations to Christians, unbiblical expectations concerning their lives, or the idea that all of us should be instantly mature and like Christ the moment we become uh, born again. And so often it, is a, it, it can be a gracelessness uh, within a congregation that says, oh boy, at that place I can't really uh, be who I am or express my struggles or, or whatever it might be. And, and so it, it, it is a, a waste of time. One of the things about hypocrisy, one of the things about acting is that is exhausting. Uh, that's a, you know, you see these people that are really good. I mean, when you see a good actor or actress and where they just have it, it's like they go into that role and you think they're that person and whatever kind of, you know, biopic may be being done or, or whatever. And then you see people that are like, um, not so good. Uh, but the people that are really good, I mean, they get 20 million, 25 million, 30 million dollars and all. And we look at it and say, well, look at how overpaid they are and our school teachers and all that. All right, well, there's an element of truth related to that, but they're not a dime a dozen. And it's very, very hard work. Some of them are a little marginal uh, for their ability to take on these different kind of uh, personalities and, and all, and fragile as a result of it. But it is hard work to live life where there is even a small gap to say nothing of a wide gap between who and what I actually am spiritually and how I present myself. And Jesus says, I don't want any part of that in Christianity. I don't want this leaven of the Pharisees to mark our lives. And again, because it's a waste of time, uh, all hypocrisy will uh, one day uh, be uncovered. And so then he moves on and he says, therefore, now here's the conclusion, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in the uh, inner rooms will be proclaimed uh, on the housetops. And so Jesus speaks then to the disciples uh, uh, that in contrast to the Pharisees who were uh, one thing outwardly, another thing secretly in a negative way, uh, that the, the message, the truth that they were speaking quietly uh, in private rooms uh, against Jesus because of the threat that he represented to their uh, religious system, that all of that one day would be uh, completely exposed and that they as his disciples would be vindicated for their uh, their faith in him as Messiah, but that it would bring uh, persecution. And so in verse 4, he starts to talk about uh, how to handle uh, fear in the face 
of persecution. And persecution, fear is a very real thing in life, and persecution produces fear. Uh, people wouldn't persecute other people or persecute Christians if they didn't know it, it, it makes uh, good use of this thing called fear. And so he said, Jesus said, I say to you, as, uh, as his disciples, my friends. <laughs> you got to underline that, right? And so he views us. Uh, friendship with God. Amazing. That's how he views us as his, his disciples. My friends, do not be afraid. Here's, here's the fear. Peter knew something of fear. Deny Jesus three times under the influence of it. Uh, Paul knew something of fear. The Lord came to him concerning Corinth and said, don't be afraid. I've got a lot of people here that are going to get saved. Um, you keep doing what you're doing. So none of us are exempt from fear. He said, don't be afraid of those who uh, kill the body and after that uh, have no more that they can uh, do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, that is God, who after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, uh, fear uh, him. And so uh, uh, Jesus is saying here that uh, things to remember related to uh, uh, these kind of times of persecution and, and fear, that being involved in the spread of the gospel is worth any price we will ever pay, any price, even physical death, for being able to carry that, carry that gospel. So we live in a country where life is valued. Um, not all life, but uh, born life is valued. And, and so this is the attitude toward life. We have a higher view of life. It is more, um, uh, you know, millions of people can die in other parts of the world and, and, uh, and nobody blinks hardly related to it and, you know, two people die in a something and it's in, in the headlines. So there's nothing wrong with uh, valuing life the way that we do as a culture. But it isn't the most, life isn't the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life for a Christian is to serve God and to be used by Him to spread the gospel, even if that means costing us our life. We saw the, the movie, uh, The Insanity of God, last uh, weekend, uh, last Sunday, and you saw that, that uh, father and husband who was in the prison, and, um, and he, he called upon his son, and he called upon his wife, I don't want to hear that you have uh, denounced Christ. I... I would, uh, I, uh, I would rather hear that you've uh, been martyred, that you've been slain for the gospel and, and not to reject it. And that's the understanding of, uh, of, uh, that we're to have in terms of what's really important in life. If, we, if people didn't really accept that, if Christians did not accept that, where are you going to get your missionaries from? Uh, where are you going to get in places in the world that are different from ours where you discreetly in North Korea share the gospel with uh, somebody else and then because of the whole, you think people are ratting people out related to COVID and masks. You haven't seen anything till they rat you out for just sharing uh, that the Christian God is real and the stakes that are, are there. 
And, uh, but it gives us a sense of, from the perspective of heaven, uh, a sense of what's really, really important in, in the eternal uh, scheme uh, of, uh, of things. The privilege of being able to carry the gospel no matter what. And of course, it's very, uh, a person is going to be afraid uh, of, of those who, naturally speaking, can can uh, uh, kill the body, and so the, the reminder is needed that what man can do to us for our faithfulness to the Lord is very, very limited, and uh, the worst they can do is kill a, our body, usher us into the glory of heaven, and, but they cannot destroy our souls, and Jesus intended this to be a, 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 a word of comfort. The loss of physical life is a very little... Uh, 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 consequence in contrast to the salvation of the soul. Is it interesting when you, when you, if you read the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus uh, wrote to those seven churches in the book of Revelation, uh, there's a church there by the name of Smyrna that was under very, very intense persecution. And uh, Jesus speaks to them in, in the midst of that persecution, and he never tells them, listen, I'm gonna get, I know you're in a pickle, uh, but I'm going to get you out of this. He spoke to them and, and wrote, and he said, uh, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty intense uh, kind of thing. Pretty intense uh, demand that Jesus makes but he, but he makes it with, this, with the realization that this life is very, very short and eternity goes on forever and ever and uh, ever. So the realization that the worst that they can do for, to us is ultimately usher us into heaven. He said, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very uh, hairs of your head are all uh, numbered. And so here Jesus reminds us of the fact that, Jesus, that the Lord is intimately aware of us. Uh, he knows the numbers of, uh, on our, uh, on our, uh, of hairs on our head. Uh, a sparrow was sold for dirt cheap kind of, uh, kind, uh, kind of uh, money. They're very inexpensive. And so it speaks of the fact that when we do face this kind of uh, uh, persecution, that it, 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 uh, he's very well aware of all of the circumstances of it, and he won't allow anything to happen outside uh, of, of his will. And so if, a, if a, a Christian does die, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned uh, us in any way. It's, it, it is that uh, he, uh, he has allowed that to come into our lives, even in the intimacy of his knowledge with us. He said, uh, do not fear, therefore you have, are of more value uh, than the sparrows. And to be confident of the fact that God loves us, confident of the fact that God uh, values us. And these things can come into doubt when we are um, in the midst of, of persecution and difficult uh, circumstances. And so uh, uh, to be confident of, of that fact. And so God, it, it, the argument that he's making here, Jesus, is if God takes uh, such good care of uh, the sparrows as their creator, and he certainly does that, then how much more is the Lord, uh, who is not only our Creator, but our Heavenly Father, uh, going to feed us and, 
and take care of us because we're of greater value to him than the birds of the air. And so if he takes care of the lesser, he's going to certainly take care uh, of the greater. Then he moves on in uh, verse 8 and lets us know we must never allow the fear of man to silence us in terms of, of sharing the gospel or um, in, in denying the Lord or denying the gospel. He said, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of uh, God. And so uh, in eternity, it's our uh, enemies who persecute us uh, because they have denied Uh, Jesus, talking about the lawyers, talking about the Pharisees uh, here. They enjoyed all of this high esteem uh, in the world, uh, and their one day in their denial of Jesus, they will be denied by Jesus. In other words, denying Jesus has uh, consequences, and he lets them know that, and and what he's telling us is that uh, we, as his disciples who confess Jesus, uh, will enjoy uh, his confession of us uh, as his own in eternity. Everything's going to be reversed in eternity from what was happening here in this uh, religious system and in uh, this religious setting. And then in verse 10, He warns against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, uh, it will be forgiven him. So people can say all kinds of nonsense about God and all uh, before they become Christians and whatever. All of those things can be forgiven. But, uh, But he said, but to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. So there's this thing called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is an unforgivable sin. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every single human being is to bring them, every person, to a faith in Jesus Christ and uh, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit uh, to re- involves a rejection of that work of the Holy Spirit all the days of our life and then to die in an unsaved uh, condition. And uh, so this is the warning that he was giving them. And so they are uh, telling the multitudes that Jesus is doing all of his miracles and the power of uh, Beelzebub. They're stating all of these lies related to him. And uh, Jesus is saying that they are rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit to him and uh, and in danger now of, of really... Uh, with their zeal of opposition to Jesus, digging down into a place in that opposition where they will never turn from it in their entire lives and and, and end up heading into a a Christless uh, eternity. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues, so here is religious uh, persecution in a uh, a hearing kind of setting, and then the magistrates and authorities. So this also involves uh, secular. So in this context, it would be uh, to, to have faith in Christ and then be brought before the Jewish religious uh, assembly, the Sanhedrin, or to be brought before Rome. Uh, and, and the Christians in that day, they were uh, facing both of these both of these kind of, uh, of dangers. And so Jesus said, when you're brought because of your faith in me uh, into these settings, do not worry about how or what you should answer 
or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Jesus is saying when we are tried for our faith in Jesus Christ in either kind of setting, the most important thing about that trial is not escaping the trial. It is not even escaping the trial with our life. The most important thing when we find ourselves in such a setting is to faithfully represent God. And, uh, and uh, the reason for our faith in Jesus Christ in that setting and, and he said, I, uh, the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you are to speak in that setting when you find yourself in that kind of an environment. And it's always fun when the Holy Spirit gives you something that you hadn't planned to say. I assume that all of us have experienced this in uh, one degree or another, or however often we might, but you're in a conversation with another Christian about a spiritual issue or something, and you start to go back and forth on it, and then all of a sudden, God just gives you an insight related to it that you then interject into the conversation, and you know you'd have never come up with that in a hundred lifetimes. You know God gave that to you, and then boom, the conversation is off and running. Happens a lot of times when uh, you're witnessing to someone. And then there'll just be this kind of a word of knowledge, word of uh, wisdom from the Lord. And, uh, and it's a very exciting thing to have the Holy Spirit then give us what it is that we need uh, to say in, in that, uh, that setting. And he promises that he, uh, he would do that. But the main thing is, is to be in that setting faithful to the message. Our life is not as important as uh, the, uh, the message. And then one from uh, the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance uh, with me. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Would you interrupt Jesus' teaching? When he's talking about stuff like this? And this guy interrupts Jesus' teaching. A multitude of people that is so great uh, that they're uh, stepping all over one another. And kind of what's happening here is, as in this call, he views Jesus just as he would view any rabbi. Uh, he views Jesus as someone to take care of a conflict that is going on in his life at that time. So uh, all of these things are just simply going over his head and he's waiting for a pause here to try and get Jesus to judge upon a situation related to his brother. And what appears has happened with the Jews, if you were to, um, uh, if, if there were a couple of brothers, and it appears that there are two brothers here, uh, and the father dies, then the estate would be given to the sons, but the oldest son would get two-thirds of the estate, the younger son would get one-third of the estate. So apparently in this situation, the older son has gotten his two-thirds, but he has failed now to uh, give the one-third uh, to his younger brother. And this is what uh, this gentleman is, is trying to get uh, Jesus now uh, to address and take care uh, of for him. And, and Jesus said to him, he said, man, so if Jesus ever refers to you as man, it's a uh, 
something bad is coming. <laughs> she said, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over uh, you? And, and uh, uh, quite a strong reaction from Jesus. Clearly, Jesus has no interest in, in this man hijacking this meeting to, to take uh, and get involved in this situation. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come into the world uh, to be drawn into these kind of temporal things. Otherwise, if I did that as a rabbi, the line would form all the way around the world. That's not what I'm here about. That's not what my ministry is about. That's not what uh, my uh, words are, are about in terms of dividing uh, estates and, uh, and wealth. He had come into the world to speak about spiritual things, eternal things. And so that was his response to the man in verse 14. And then he turns to the crowd. He said to them, he's going to make it a teachable moment for them and us. He said, take heed. Now listen up here. Notice this. Take heed and beware. Okay, now he's got, uh, got our attention. Take heed and beware of what? Of covetousness. And here's the reason. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, covetousness is greed. Covetousness is, the definition that I like for it, is the ungodly desire for more. There is, selfish ambi- uh, there is ambition in life that is very good. But selfish ambition is not good. And so the desire for more that's born out of a covetousness, to just have more and more and more, uh, that is, is something, that, and that becomes the master passion of our life, the accumulation of wealth. He says, beware, take heed and beware of that. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. There goes the whole economy of the world because that's how the economy of the world uh, works under, is that uh, our value, our self-worth, is based upon the abundance of the things that we possess. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's the old uh, license plate uh, holder. Well, it's funny on a license plate holder, but a lot of people uh, live that way. Life is not found in the accumulation of, of possessions not found for a non-Christian. And it certainly isn't a way for a Christian to spend our lives as Jesus warns here. And then he spoke a parable uh, related to this very lesson, uh, again, to the crowd. And he said, uh, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. So he's already rich. And now he's, now he's got another bumper crop coming. And at a time in life where your wealth was measured by food, uh, food to have a full belly at the end of the day, that was a significant, uh, significant kind of thing. And so he's very, very wealthy. He's got all kinds of food. And now he has even more food that is uh, going to be uh, uh, coming in so much that he doesn't know what to, uh, to do uh, with it. I, I think about, and I mentioned it in one of the services this morning, about this whole thing about thankfulness and what a, a, a price we're paying for the uh, fleetingness uh, of, of thankfulness within our culture. Um, 
in the ancient world, to have a full belly was a luxury. You were a rich person to be able to do that. To have meat in your diet once a week, you were a rich person to be able to do that. And so it's kind of odd for me when, when I look at the United States of America today and Antifa and all these groups that want to overthrow the country and take us into Marxism and socialism. And uh, it's, a, it's an absence of thank, thankfulness. And uh, to be able to walk into a store and you see food in all directions. Name the communist country that that happens in. Name the socialist country that that happens in, where there is food like that. We are so blessed, we are so rich, uh, that we don't even recognize it any longer. That we are willing, uh, it, we become so accustomed to it, that we think that it is just the norm in history, and that you can play games with it, and that somehow those supermarkets will already remain, <clears throat> always remain as full as they are. It's crazy. It's crazy what's going on in, in that regard. So he has wealth in the form of food, and he's got a lot of it. And so he thought within himself, you know, you're going to have wealth, you're going to think things about it. He thought to himself, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down all of these old barns that are now insufficient, and I will build greater barns. And uh, there I will store all my crops and my goods. Now, you'll have to take my word for it, but you can, you can count them if you'd like to. In verse 17 and 18, he uses the two words, I and my, 11 times. So in terms of his wealth, God never comes in to his thinking at all, and uh, the needs of needy people around him don't enter into his thinking at all. This is all completely uh, for uh, himself. And, and so he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'll have more than ever. And then I will say uh, to my soul, uh, <clears throat> soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, uh, and uh, be merry. And so he, uh, he uh, is excited about all of this, and he looks and says, I am uh, set for life. But the Lord then said to this man, fool, he said, this night your soul shall be required of you, and then whose will these things be which you have uh, provided. And so uh, here God confronts him with his plans for all of his wealth, confronts him for the assessment of his life based upon his wealth, and God calls him a fool for two reasons. Uh, the first reason uh, is that he assumed that he had many, many more days to live out ahead of him when death was going to be right a, a, around the, the corner for him, just a, a day away. And then the second reason he's called a fool is because he wasn't as wise a financial planner uh, in, in terms of his future as, as he thought uh, that he was. He handled his wealth in a way that death separated him from it uh, completely. Okay. Is somebody saying something? 
Does it, would, did I just hear that on my own, or did somebody else hear it too? Okay. All right. Well, I'll, con- I'll continue here. And while I'm at it, uh, you gentlemen in the back row right there, if you don't want to be in this room, you can get out of this room. But if you sit in this room, you'll be respectful for what's happening in this room. All right? There's life and death in this room. And this isn't a game for you to get up and do whatever you want and talk and all of that. It's a serious business. So he isn't the wise financial planner that he thinks that, uh, that he is. Again, because death is going to separate him from his wealth and the control of, of his wealth. And so uh, now as he dies, it, it leaves his control uh, co- uh, completely, and it will be spent, as Jesus said, uh, in, uh, 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 according to the wishes of uh, those that he leaves behind. And so once a person dies, the point that Jesus is making is that once a person dies, we lose control of our wealth. We lose control of how it, it gets spent. And that uh, truth is something that Jesus wants us to give consideration to here uh, in, in what it is that he's giving this parable related to it. And so from heaven's perspective, no one who leaves great wealth behind in this world while failing to send any on ahead uh, can be considered a great financial uh, planner. And so the world would look at this man and commend him for what it is that, uh, how he has spent his money. This is a wise man. This is a prudent man. And, uh, but Jesus in his own word says, uh, this is the, uh, God would call them uh, the decisions of a fool. I remember hearing a joke about a rich man uh, in town, uh, and, and he died, and the people stood around the casket at the cemetery, and one man asked another man, how much did he leave? And the man replied, uh, all of it. And that's the truth about everybody. And from the vantage point of, of heaven, too many people uh, uh, do that. Now, you notice there in, in verse 21, and so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward uh, God. Another translation of it, New Living Translation, Living Bible, is yes, every man is a fool who gets rich on earth, but not in heaven. Ultimately, wealth uh, will, the ultimate determination will be is how, what our wealth translates into upon entering into uh, heaven. And so our handling of wealth is to be uh, considered in, in that kind of a way. So it's important to realize that this parable is directed toward covetousness in, in a person's heart, whether a person is rich or poor. A person can be very, very poor and still be covetousness and, and rich and be very, very liberal. So it, 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 it's, it's not about wealth, it's about how wealth uh, is, is directed. And, and Jesus wants to keep uh, the crowd, keep us as his disciples, uh, to keep from misusing our life uh, in, in this way. And so he then said to his disciples, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor uh, about the body, uh, what you will uh, put on. And so Jesus moves then uh, from this parable about this man as he's accumulating this wealth as a means of security uh, and, and all. And now he addresses the motivation 
that is behind uh, so much uh, covetousness or a selfish handling of wealth, and that is the motivation of fear. That somehow, if I am generous towards God, and by, and by the way, we won't take an offering tonight, if I am generous toward God or gener- generous toward my fellow man around me, that somehow I won't uh, be taken care of. And that's what Jesus then, he anticipates our protests related to this, and, and then he, uh, he addresses them, and he gives us seven really outstanding reasons for why we shouldn't worry in, in that regard uh, as Christians. And so again, verse 23, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put uh, on. And so uh, we're not to worry because life is more than food and the body is more than, than clothing. In other words, Jesus contends that if God has already done the greater thing, which is to give you and I life, then he uh, is also going to do the lesser thing of supplying us with food. If he supplied us with a body, which is the greater thing, then he's also going to supply us uh, with the the lesser thing, and that is to provide us with clothing. And the idea uh, of the answer here uh, to all of this is that, of course, he will do that. And so in uh, verse uh, 22, Jesus is addressing uh, any concern that we might have in our minds concerning God's ability to provide us with food and clothing in the course of our life. And further on, he's going to deal with uh, Jesus, uh, whether God uh, uh, has uh, a satisfactory motivation to provide us uh, with uh, food and clothing in the course of our pilgrimage. So he says, none of us should worry one bit about these things as his children. He's given us a body. He knows what we need to put on it and to eat, and he'll take care of it. And then, then he goes on uh, to say, life is more uh, than food, and the body is uh, more uh, than uh, clothing. And consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them of how much more value are you uh, than the birds. And so he tells us, look at the birds for how God provides for the birds and, uh, and, to, and to learn from them. So you look at the birds, and you ever seen a bird uh, build a barn? Um, uh, a farm silo, any kind of a storage kind of building for uh, a day to get extra worms or uh, extra seeds. They don't do that. A- and so uh, the fowl of the air, the birds, they are much more vulnerable to starvation than we will ever be by virtue of the fact that they don't have the capacity to store the way that we do, and yet they live. And yet they're provided uh, for. And you never see birds worrying out in your backyard when you look at them. You never see a wing up like this and uh, lamenting, you know, the fact that they're, not, they're going to starve to death. And so they, they uh, teach us that, that lesson. God takes care of them because He is their Creator. God is going to take care of us not just because He is our Creator, but because He is our Heavenly Father. And then He says, And which of you by worrying can add one cubit or 18 inches to his stature. <clears throat> None of us be able to do, uh, can do that. <clears throat> if I could do that, 
I'd have been playing in the NBA somewhere, uh, younger. I could just be this tall stick out there. If I had 18 more inches, I could block everything. I don't care how uh, talented anybody would be, Manute Bull. And he developed a three-point shot uh, uh, for the Warriors, but enough of that. But uh, uh, the point is, as he says, which of you, uh, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, then why are you anxious for the rest? And the point is, is that worry doesn't accomplish anything. It can't, it can't accomplish anything. Worry doesn't fix our our problems. And I love the old saying, is it worries like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it never accomplishes anything. It never gets you anywhere. And that's the truth. Has, has worry ever accomplished a single thing for you in your life? Uh, productive, I mean. The ulcers are off the table and high blood pressure and all of that. No, it doesn't. I, I have found that 90% of the things that I uh, worry about never take place. And if, if I put every other thing in my life to that kind of a test, if there was anything else in my life that I invested time in, that 90% of it was a pure waste of time, I'd jettison it. But this silly thing called worry, this idea that somehow we're accomplishing something uh, by doing it, and yet Jesus says don't invest in it because uh, it, it's a pure, uh, absolute uh, waste of time. And then he tells us further, verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed uh, like one of these. And Solomon was arrayed in all of the glory of, of uh, that wealth, human wealth could uh, produce. And, and Jesus said, If then God so clothes the grass... Uh, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. These beautiful, here we're coming towards spring, aren't we? Some of the plants are starting to bud. And then pretty soon you're just going to see uh, fields that are uh, these beautiful flowers that God just gives to us as, a, as an expression of His creative ability and His, his beauty. And, uh, and there they are in all of their glory, and then they dry out after a short period of time, and the winds come and spring passes, and then in those days it would then be used as kindling to start fires in order to cook. That's where they would uh, end up. And so, if God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, uh, of, uh, you uh, owe you of little faith? And so, He tells us again to learn a lesson from, look at what He invests in a flower that will, will wilt and die in 48 hours. And, and, uh, and if he does that for uh, a flower, invests that kind of beauty in something like that in terms of clothing it, then isn't he going to clothe us as well? And certainly he will. And do not seek uh, what you should eat or what you should drink, uh, nor have an anxious mind about these things. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father, see here's the difference, your Father knows that you need these things. And so to know that he knows is to know it's going to be okay. 
that he's a heavenly father, and he takes that role very, very seriously uh, in, in our uh, lives. And that's a wonderful reassurance to let that uh, uh, wash over us. As Jesus speaks about God the Father as our Father, he knows how to take care uh, of these needs that we have. And then in uh, verse uh, 31, he brings it uh, to its pinnacle, but seek uh, uh, in, I like it in one of the other Gospels, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. If we simply make um, uh, 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 God's purposes for our lives in this world the priority of our life, obeying God, living for God, serving God, God says, uh, as you make that a priority, I don't let people starve in that position. I don't let them go unclothed in that position. You don't have to even think about any of these things. Just think about seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of this, uh, these other things that He knows that we need. Uh, he will take care of those and, and provide them to us. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your uh, Father's good pleasure uh, to give you the kingdom, that is, uh, to give us heaven. And, and, uh, and in the light of the fact that we're all going to be in, in heaven one day as Christian, uh, Christians, Jesus uh, in, uh, commands us now to lay up treasures uh, in heaven. And so sell what you have and give alms, uh, help people out, provide yourselves money bags that uh, do not grow old, a treasure, in, uh, a, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor uh, moth destroys, for where, the, where your treasure is, there your heart will be uh, also. And so this lifetime is the only lifetime that we have to lay up treasure in heaven by uh, taking this material side of our life, the finances of our life, and to say, Lord, all of this belongs to you. You have given it to me. And how do you want me to spend this? And there are going to be uh, people who are Christians where maybe on Social Security or this or that or disability or whatever, and there's not going to be much after they've done uh, what they've done to get through uh, the month with their responsibilities. But there's a whole uh, other group of people that um, might have $5 left over or might have uh, $50,000 a month left over. And, and to uh, take that into consideration about how does God want me to spend this, to lay up treasure in heaven uh, while I'm in this life, which is the only time I can do that. And we lay up treasure in heaven by giving to God, giving to God's work, and then by being directed by the Holy Spirit in, in giving to others as, as He would uh, direct us. And so that money then kind of goes on ahead into heaven uh, related to us, and um, and we're laying up treasure in heaven as a result of handling our money <clears throat> in, that, uh, in that way. And uh, one day we'll receive uh, the reward of that upon entering into heaven. I always like the story I heard early in my Christian life that uh, it gives me kind of a life to the truth of all of this. And it was about a rich man who went to heaven. And uh, one of the angels was given the responsibility of leading uh, him to his new home up there. 
And so they passed through one neighborhood. There were great mansions there and, and the, the kind that he was accustomed to in life. And he expected to be directed into one of those mansions. And soon they passed through that neighborhood. Then they came to a lesser neighborhood. And he, and he thought to himself, well, it's not quite what I'm accustomed to, but I suppose I, I could uh, be comfortable uh, here and make myself happy here. And pretty soon they passed out of that neighborhood and then another and another and until they stood before something that looked more like a shed than a house. And uh, when informed that this was his, the man immediately began to protest. And the angel silenced him by saying, we did the best with what you uh, sent us. And, uh, uh, and that's the truth of the matter. And it, and it isn't like, okay, this is what preachers say or pastors say in a church and they're just trying to, you know, gin everybody up for an offering or something like that. It's a privilege to give to God. It's a, God has always taken care of this church. It's a privilege. Imagine if God said, I don't want your money. I won't give you the opportunity to invest material in the kingdom of God in my name. I won't take one penny of it. And we had it. All we could do is just spend our money on the temporal, spend it upon ourselves. What a curse it would be. And the biggest curse of it is, as Jesus said, where our treasure is, so our heart will also uh, be. It is when we give to the things of the Lord we, and, uh, and our treasures being laid up in heaven, then our mind is more set upon heaven. And, and to test this is very easy to do. If you're invested in the stock market, how close do you pay attention to the stock market? You pay close attention to it. If you've invested in real estate, how close do you watch the real estate market where your investments are? You watch it very, very closely. We really watch and have a great concern for where our resources are invested. And Jesus is saying the same thing is true in terms of giving to him and giving to his kingdom and investing in heaven. Then it causes us to have a great interest in the kingdom of, of God and, uh, and the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so he speaks that there in verse 34. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be uh, also. And so the beautiful uh, instruction that he gives that, that, uh, so that we don't end up as rich fools in this life and uh, dying and losing control of our uh, resources, having never given any consideration to God or to other people related to the resources that he has provided uh, to us. And so in this very covetous culture that we live in in the United States of America, very uh, uh, security conscious uh, um, culture that we live in, this is always uh, a good word. Um, let's have the men come forward now as we'll prepare uh, to partake of the Lord's Supper now this evening. And I'd, I would just ask that you turn over to Luke chapter uh, 22 uh, for a moment, and we'll just read about the Lord's Supper there. Luke chapter 22, in verse 19. Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake of, of now, he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it. And he said to them, and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And so Jesus tells us that we are uh, to do this in remembrance of him uh, tonight. And when he talks about this is in verse 19, this is my body which is given for you, he's talking about Calvary, to remember the price that he paid in order for us to be forgiven and to be saved. And then in uh, verse 20, as the cup uh, was passed there among the disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And to realize that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross provides the covenant, the foundation, the agreement, uh, the terms by which we have a relationship with God. And the terms of that are based 100% solely upon not works, but upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ uh, upon uh, the cross. And so to remember the sacrifice, to remember the price that was paid by Jesus, for us to have the blessings that we have as ours as Christians. I I don't know that we need too much to prime the pump uh, of thankfulness concerning Jesus in our hearts, but maybe a couple thoughts uh, here. Um, To just stop for a moment and think about the person you once were before you became a Christian. And to think about what he saved us out of. And to maybe just to stop and to think about where you might be tonight and what you and I uh, might be tonight if we had never gotten saved. It's a horrifying thought for me. I don't think I would be alive, honestly. And, and, and to just stop sometimes to appreciate, you just have to have kind of a contrast a little bit, the life that I have now with something else, because we get so used to the blessings of this life. And to just stop and, and to think that at one time we were absolutely and individually destined uh, for eternal judgment because of our sin and that it is only the sacrifice of Jesus that has delivered us out of that judgment and to realize that Jesus and God the Father never needed to do that. Jesus never needed to come into this world and to die on that cross and to provide us with salvation. God could have judged every single human being and been absolutely righteous in doing that. And sometimes we can think about God and say, well, you know, he had to do that because that's what uh, God would, would do. Uh, based upon what God? The Hindu gods? Or based upon the God of the Bible? We only believe that because we know the God of the Bible and because he did that uh, for us. He didn't have to do it. And he didn't owe it to us. If he owed it to us, then it wouldn't be grace. What we deserved was judgment. And the, the, the salvation from that judgment is his grace. There is so much to be thankful for tonight as we consider the symbols of his body and his blood that were broken and the blood that was shed in order for us to enjoy the incredible Christian life that we enjoy in this life to say nothing of the life to come. And the men will pass out the, the bread and the cup. It'll have the two kind of 
wrappers on it. You take the top wrapper and it'll give you the bread. We'll pray together. And then we'll take the bottom wrapper and then partake of the cup together. Hold, hold it when you receive it and, and we'll partake together tonight. And so gentlemen, let's, let's go ahead and serve that.